Welcome to Antimatterpod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we discuss the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, The Sounds of Thunder. Alright, big Saru episode. <laughs> I almost for a while didn't know what I had to say about this at all because it was so different from how I expected this plotline to unfold. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And, and I agree I, I, that, that expectations were of a certain type of story or that it was going to go, like certain decisions were going to be made and, and revelations, and then it, it was different than, than everyone expected. Yes, and I don't, think that, I don't think it was bad, but it's, it's difficult to reconcile the version in my head from what actually <laughs> happened. And I will say, and we can get into this later, I found the ending disquieting. The ending, like, the, the, how they resolved everything? Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> quote, unquote, resolve everything? Because it doesn't feel very resolved to me. If I was on that planet, I think I would, I would have some questions. Yeah. But uh, I, like, I both had many, many things to say, and, and I agree with you that I also was, was difficult coming up with things to say. Because all of the things I had to say were, like were sort of tangents. They weren't about this episode necessarily, or oh, like they weren't about the action or the, like what happened, but this reminds me of this and this reminded me of that. And, and, and I have questions about this and, and what, what is going on here? You know what I mean? Like I just, I had all a lot to say about the periphery, but the actual like plot, the, <laughs> what, what was happening on screen. It's like, oh, that was nice. <laughs> Interestingly, much like uh, New Eden, this is being held up in wider fandom, fandom circles as the best episode of Discovery so far. And <laughs> it didn't rub me the wrong way, the way New Eden did. It raised a lot of questions, but I, I, uh, and if they're not answered, I'll be disappointed. But uh, it, it's just interesting that we're, we're both kind of left, not really cold, but not quite knowing what to say about yeah. this episode that seems very widely popular among the wider fa- fandom. I'm, I'm not sure why. Like, I, with the New Eden, I sort of get why that episode is really popular with people because it's yeah. very Star Trek. It's very... I don't know what the word is. It, like, it has... It's... I don't want to say formulaic, but, like, if there is a Star Trek formula, it follows that. Yes. But this one doesn't seem to follow the same Star Trek formula. It seems like new stuff and new ideas and different things that are happening yeah it's almost almost formula breaking in the it's it's an episode it's a prime directive episode where they decide fairly easily that this is actually a situation where it's okay to interfere and a lot of the drama is personal yeah it's not like the right the big questions they're not even really asked. Like they, they briefly discuss the prime directive, but it's sort of like immediately, you know, that's fine. We're gonna we're gonna interfere, and then, like once they they first decide to interfere, then it's like a, a rolling down, you know, ball down the hill, gathering giant bits of snow, <laughs> that they they just completely interfere in everything. It's almost an episode about why we need the prime directive. <laughs> Yeah, because... Hey, kids, don't do it this way. 
I mean, it's just bananas. It's wild what they, they just like, you know, they come up with a, a decision. Oh, what is it in Jurassic Park where, uh, you know, they, they figure out that they can do it and they don't stop to think if they should. <laughs> they yes. Just, they just go. Yes. We could have a Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park gif for every episode of Discovery so far in season oh two. We should work on that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's a worthy project. <laughs> that's a good idea. I thought that there would be a lot of drama about Saru wanting to go home and not being allowed to. Yeah. And instead it's like, oh, hey, there's a red burst. We'd better take off and have a look. I didn't mind this, but it raises questions again. Right. I'm not a huge fan of the Red Angel leading them to water at this point. I'm beginning to be upset at it. <laughs> I, it, could, it. It could change. You know, it's still early on in the story. We still don't know what their goal is or you know what and we don't know anything about the red angel but this this episode in particular i was like really though like it it has to be that the the red angel brings them there this makes me think that it is a time travel story and the twist will be that michael is the red angel and she's doing this basically to to complete a paradox you know it's it's not coincidence <laughs> it's michael completing events which she knows have already taken place yeah i don't like that idea either <laughs> you're honest. not a paradox fan nope <laughs> i mean i i'm not a i'm i don't like predestiny i guess okay. i'm a big uh opponent to the <laughs> idea that you have to do things a certain way and and that's i so i guess that means i'm against time paradoxes but i'm not against the idea, if it's done, if it's done to to explain why those choices were necessary, or like I don't know, I'm gonna need more. I'm gonna need it to be a really good reason for all mm. of this happening. If it's Michael or who, if it's anyone, for them to make that decision, I need there to be a really good story explaining why that was the best idea. That was the correct way to go. No, that makes sense. Just fixing the timeline is not going to do it for me. It needs to be, there, there needs to, because that's like, we already, we, we did it already, so we know that we have to do it. And it's like, no, because the first time you did it, you didn't know. <laughs> like, they, I, I, I disbelieve in the idea that it always had to be this way. I had no idea you had such strong feelings about predestination paradoxes. I'm absolutely delighted to learn this about you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like I love the Terminator movies. I love mm. them, but it's sort of like I like the cracks in it. You know, I like looking at that. I, look, I look, like looking in where it doesn't fit the storyline, mm. I guess. Those, those are the interesting bits. And also we've just seen predestination predestination paradoxes in media enough that it starts to feel like a bit of a bit of a narrative cop-out right right it's because that that's why i'm saying i need a good i need a good story i need a good explanation mm. if there is this like personal familial you know if there's if they're building up this whole spot drama for there to be some big reason for this and this drama you know like if if it's if it ends up being a choice then that's, that's, I'm looking forward to that. But yes. it needs to be a choice. It can't be, I mean, I shouldn't say okay. In order for me to be happy with the plot line, 
it needs to be there needs to be agency in the choice and it's not this i you know idea that we have to do it to yes. make this work in order for the last week to happen we have to do this thing i don't i don't like that that's like i'm i'm the person who stands up and says what happens if we don't <laughs> like what what then <laughs> so yeah so saru is reunited with his sister she's delighted to see him but also kind of pissed off that he buggered off into space without a word to anyone and they thought he was gone they thought he was being taken and punished by the baul i'm glad that that serrano was allowed to have those feelings yes and that she got to say you know this this conversation is not over and i i even though the situation was resolved i'm glad that she, the com- the complexity of her feelings got to be acknowledged I, I like this. The one part that I liked about the Red Angel was that when she saw it, she was like, "So that's what you're you're here to find." Okay, I understand why this is a bigger thing than me and my feelings. <laughs> like yeah. it was sort of like I liked that. I liked her immediate realization and and that she like understood sort of the higher calling of Starfleetness based on this one her one experience with it. So I liked yes. that. I liked. Serana, you know, throughout the episode, really. Yeah. I like that although she's not a seeker and as curious as Saru, she's not demonised for that. Because there were certainly points where, you know, he's just discovered that his whole culture's religious system basically is a lie. And he's sort of wandering around like, wake up, sheeple! I've just read The God Delusion and I have some ideas that I would like to share with all of you. You know, he's turned into that guy briefly. And it deeply entertaining but she like the people who are still part still consider themselves part of the great balance are not demonized or treated like idiots you know Sarana's clearly an intelligent woman she's just on a slightly different wavelength to Saru yeah can I just say one random comment that always I, I need to know if Saru and Sarana are like if those names are supposed are like so close on yeah like i really want to know about the nomenclature of the kelpians because there it really feels like it's the the boy version and the girl version of this name yes and i think i and i'm like are they like do we know who's old like i assume that he's either older or they're the same age but i i want to know more about yes why they have such a similar name <laughs> which is like a ridiculous cultural you know, it, 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 you know, people have similar names. It's not like no one should care about this, but I'm very interested. Well, I think it's like you said in an earlier episode, in fiction, names are never coincidence. Right. Yeah. And obviously, like a massive amount of work has gone into the world building of of Kamina. The episode was co-written by Bo Yon Kim, who has an anthropology degree. And I think that actually made it really hang together quite well you know the Ba'ul's manipulations have taken place over two millennia which is easily enough time for a situation to become accepted as the status quo Uh, and just the whole thing really worked in the way that New Eden didn't yeah because there there was clearly a lot of thought put into this and a lot like they really created a new a new world with these two different species and yeah. cult- cultures like they 
the Kelpians and the Bayou, they have no real connection beyond the fact that they both live on this planet. Like, there's, it's, you know, it's this whole predator and prey thing and, and who's on top. Yes. But they don't share, like, they're always, for these all these millennia, they've been in opposition. So yes. they don't have any, like, shared culture foundation i guess that we've seen no although saru says that it's difficult it's difficult to separate what's really kelpian culture from what has been imposed or brought in by the ba'ul which i thought you know that that is almost a colonizer situation yeah it's just it's so interesting because they look like such different species it's like if your sheep were at war with your crayfish or something like that <laughs> yeah it, right it's it's so it's i mean again i want to how how did they evolve here like are is there a shared ancestor or are they completely separate did was one planted there and, and one native like there's there's so many questions and then yeah. you know the baul have i guess they've only had warp capability for 20 years which seems like that's really short amount of time. My daughter is 20 years, like, but they do have, you know, this giant system of, like, they have a lot of tech. Yeah. And apparently they have warp capabilities, but how did, like, how did that happen? And how did they, like, at what point, it must have been, like, after they, they drove the Kelpians back that they started building their city. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and, and they're, they're underwater and they come up. So are they from underwater? I mean, they seem to be pretty liquidy. They do. So, That's why I'm thinking crayfish. Yeah. So I just, it's like, what, what's going on in this planet? And, and what, you know, I want to know everything from the beginning of, of its, uh, its seeding, the, the, the species to now. And that's because I mean because they gave us so much I want to know all of it I want to know the yes rest. I really like the detail that they have this advanced technology but only just recently discovered warp drive because I think that says a lot about their priorities as a culture you know they've put yeah. millennia of work into controlling and managing the Kelpians but right. they're isolationists what do they want with warp drive it's nice to have but you know they're not going anywhere it's not a priority for them. Yeah, which it's interesting because is it be, like are they they're happy? Like they they don't really have full control. Like they have control over the Kelpians, but they still don't have control over the planet, right? Because the Kelpians are still there. Do the Kelpians like what purpose do the Kelpians serve for the Baul that they just kept them instead of getting rid of them? You know what I mean? It must genuinely be some kind of ecological consideration or you know, the ecosystem that which supports the Ba'ul depends on having the Kelpians. Kelpians. Like, you know, if, if insect life dies out on Earth, then that means fewer spiders and whatnot. So that's great, but we do need the insects. So it's like a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. But it's an oppositional symbiotic relationship. Yes. And, and sort of artificially so, because, you know, the, the Kelpians didn't have to be didn't have to be predators and the Ba'ul didn't have to control them in this way you know humans Mm. are predators but there are vegetarians among us you know 
the Kelpians should have had a choice and they didn't. Mm. And there, that is like that is a theme that's been in Star Trek before, where people have been at war for thousands of years because no one stepped in to say this is a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> like there was a that there was a, a original series episode with the big computer that like it would tell you that you'd been killed in the simulated yes. attack. And then the uh, living witness in Voyager, uh, where the doctor like wakes up thousands of years in the future. And that planet also, like, had, there were, like, two races, I guess. They weren't, they were, I don't know if they were different species or different, or, but whatever. There, there were two of them. There were two sides. And one was, like, oppressing the other, and then the other was oppressing that one. And they just kept sort of going back and forth between who was oppressing who. Yeah. And the doctor was like, this is stupid. You could just share. <laughs> Which is a really sort of smug outsider point of view you know it's it's easy when to, to see the solution if you're not actually involved yeah which is why i'm concerned about what happens next on this planet yes but getting there like i really I, i've come to really like pike and how he uses his authority but his whole decision that uh saru should not be involved on on Kamina, I thought was very Star Trekian in and a sort of Western way of thinking in terms of privileging the outsider point of view and the so-called neutrality of well, you know, the anthropologist, the outside observer. And I think a lot of a lot of stuff with um, Saru is critical of anthropology as a field and how other, how it others its subjects. And this was another example example of that Mm. and i think it's important that the ultimate solution to uh throw the whole kelpian population into vaharai it comes from saru who is you know part of them and he's making this decision for his people i still don't know that it was necessarily a good decision but it's not being imposed by aliens it is being imposed by a someone who's been influenced by aliens yes yes and and who hasn't who it's had the privilege of going through Vaharai uh knowing knowing it was happening and with the best futuristic medical care and he yeah like that must have been incredibly traumatic for the entire Kelpian population and people probably committed suicide you know that's their solution and I just think it was such an extreme situation that I think you could argue that it was the right decision but I would be very eager to see the fallout right so yeah that's what I'm saying there have to be consequences and I'm always interested in seeing the consequences yeah and I feel like that would make an interesting episode for season three if we don't revisit it this season like Mm. an ongoing story about the evolution of Kaminar would be really interesting yes and and you know all of these people who thought they were prey and now they're suddenly predators and and it's like is how how do you deal with that as a society do you become incredibly violent like i I would love to see (laughs) i just want to know how this plays out yeah i mean when you think about what they're saying about the just just the physical changes Mm. they have this like early warning system of something bad is, it's like basically spidey sense right but it's yeah. like spidey sense that makes your heart race and and tells you to run away and, and kicks in your like uh fight or flight mm. 
It's like an anxiety disorder that everyone else can see. Yeah. And then those fall out and what grows in are like spikes that can shoot out of your body (laughs) as weapons. Like, that's an interesting evolutionary design, first of all. Yes. I want to know more about that too. And and also his, like, his, Dr. Pollard said that his fear processes are being repressed or something. Yeah. So you go from having a higher than average level of anxiety and the visuals to go with it to having a lower or at least a lower than you had Mm. maybe it's maybe it's normal now but it's lower than you had level of anxiety and actual weapons that you can use yeah it seems like a really bad combination especially because it seems like the weapons are involuntary like how many <laughs> spiky thing related accidental deaths are they going to experience before they start getting a handle on it? So it's it's very interesting. And so, you know, if that's if just again, just looking at the physical change is so flipped, like so completely a 180 of what you of what you were. Mm. Of course, like the mental capacity to deal with that is like something is going to happen to you. And it yeah. was great. It was great to see like Saru be more confident, be more decisive. Like that I'm I'm glad for Saru that he's becoming less anxious. Yes. But and you know, he's I don't he's not because he's surrounded by these Starfleet people and, and they they'll like point out if he's if he's starting to become a predator. Like they'll be like Saru, back off. Like I, like, I feel like Michael is there to, to keep him from falling yes. into anything. But, of, you know, on the planet when... And once, like, if they find out what the Ba'ul have been doing to them for two millennia, like, that they convinced them... How could they not want revenge? Yeah. How could they <laughs> not be furious? <laughs> and, and now you've got biological weapons. Like, it's just... It's crazy. So yeah, that's a, like a powder keg waiting to happen over there. And I, yeah. I also, like, what what exactly did the Red Angel do to the bubbles? Like, did they break their weapons forever? <laughs> did, yeah. Did they destroy the whole network? Like, what happened there, too? Like, what exactly happened to the bubble? What, what ha- Are they completely defenseless? Because that seems bad. <laughs> Obviously, they're not good people, but I don't think that genocide is the solution. Right. It really is. And and we don't know, like, you know, I, I don't want to be, like, sticking up for the bow or anything, but I'm not. <laughs> but they're, you know, they can't all be terrible. There have to be some who are, like, these little minions that yeah they yeah. don't even know that it's not true like they they probably don't realize what was this decision that was made so long ago either like the authorities yes. might but the general population of baul they they could be be like complicit by accident yeah. so yeah they're not not without responsibility, but ultimately they're, they've been duped too. So I'm concerned. I really feel like this was the sort of ending that, that ex, 
you know, demonstrates why the Prime Directive is important and why we don't want to mess around with other cultures willy-nilly. And that's why I'm concerned about the Red Angel. Like, I'm, I'm yes, like <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know, I mean, I they, I, I have a lot of questions about that too. It's like, well, okay, so. And, you know, and they're asking them in within the story, they have yes. Pike versus Tyler giving two ID, you know, two viewpoints on what's going on with the Red Angel. Are these signals, you know, it, is it a, a benevolent entity? Is it, are they tricking us? Is there, you know, what, what it, are we being used? Mm. Like there's mm. a lot going on there and because the Red Angel, like, the Red Angel didn't interfere until Pike already started interfering. Like, Pike yes. blew up one. So the, the Red Angel didn't, like, take the choice away from Starfleet, but... It magnified it. Yeah, they did it faster and with a lot more success than, than Starfleet could have done. Like, the Discovery could have saved some portion of the Kelpians, but mm. not all of them. And and that's, you know, when you said this is a, a, a good story for why the Prime Directive exists, like that's the kind of question that the Prime Directive is is asking. It's like, is it re- what is the balance between interviewing on, on such a high level that not only did we like super evolve these people, the Red Angel took out all of the Ba'ul too. Yeah. So it was like Starfleet interfering and then the Red Angel interfering kind of on Starfleet's behalf. Yeah. And so that's like two huge decisions <laughs> that were made based on Saru's determination to, you know, stop this, the oppression of his people. Yes. And this idea that the Red Angel brought them there to do something. Yes, and if the Red Angel is not Michael, like, even even if it was Michael, she is not naturally a time traveller. I don't know if you've noticed, but the wings are pretty, you know, well hidden. So who has given her access to this technology and what is their motivation? Right. What if it's Michael? And I think it might be because Saru got a pretty good look and you can see, like, hips and a sort of similar feminine slim build to Sonico Martin Green. But how, how has she come to be there right. and what does she think she's doing versus what is really happening? Yeah. Where did she get her mecha suit? <laughs> what if... Oh, my God, I just had a stroke of genius. What if the people controlling the Red Angel is Section 31 from the future? So while Ash is like, oh, they're dangerous, we really have to be careful of them. And I agree, I just like doing that voice. Uh, Section 31 is basically fighting war against itself. Wow. (laughs) That's, uh, yeah. Related. I've had a lot of cups of tea this morning. (laughs) But those are the kind of time travel things I like, where it's like, we're fighting ourselves. (laughs) And that's interesting. I'm into season two of Enterprise by now, and I'm so interested in the concept of the temporal Cold War and also left completely unimpressed by the actual execution. And so if, if, um, if, if Discovery is taking another pass at the temporal warfare concept, I'm quite happy mm. for them to do that. And to, yeah, to do it with a, 
with a map, I guess, to be like, okay, it didn't work in this way, so we're going to, yeah, yeah. we're going to, ex- but it was still a good idea, so let's expand on that. I, yeah, like there are certainly things that Enterprise just couldn't do because it was the early 2000s and they didn't have access to that sort of to special effects. And there's stuff that they wouldn't do, like treat female characters like people. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that <laughs> Enterprise couldn't and wouldn't do. At some point, we're just going to have to have an episode that's me ranting about Enterprise <laughs> and how no one wears a bra, and it's going to be great. <laughs> Are you... So you're, you're only in season two? Okay, so <laughs> you can look forward to the underwear of season three. <laughs> Hoshi falls over and her shirt comes off. I mean, mm. but it's like, uh, Ash is really set up to be on, maybe not necessarily the wrong side, but pretty much the wrong side from the point of view of everyone else on the ship and the way the stories have been told thus far. Um, and he yes. comes he comes off as kind of paranoid, which is in character, but also mm-hmm. like indoctrinated to section thirty one's point of view. Even I again, we are not quite sure how long he's been on the ship. He's he's been in section thirty one for like a week. I I know, but that's what it, like we can't ever tell. So it's some it's something something between three days and and two weeks, <laughs> and he is really towing the party line on this like he is very like i just sometimes i remember the ash in the episode in the pavo episode where mm. he was like waxing rhapsodic about fishing <laughs> it's like that guy because did he like who knows if he ever really existed at all but but he, and i it was funny because i was like i like ash in his first appearance, then we got to that episode, you know, and end his like mm. he's just the mud episode is starting to have a relationship with Michael. But then in that that episode, I was like, oh, you were so boring. You're like this <laughs> jock from Seattle. <laughs> like I was all of a sudden like, ugh, yuck. You're so I, I'm over you. And and now I just there's there's so many like he's he's very much a character that I like a character that I really like. Who it, I is the uh, the you know I, I say is an Annika character because <laughs> they serve the plot more than they they have a character <laughs> like they, it's whatever they need to be this week is that that's who they are and so they're kind of this really messy you know and I and I like them because I like to come up with the reasons that that yes that they go from point A to point B to point C like I like to find the through line of characterization that is not really there because they the writers aren't like they're not worrying about that that character's character they're worrying about the story they're telling and they're putting that character into it but i am interested in how the story is creating that character if that mm. makes sense. It sort of makes sense that, that Ash would glom onto the ideology of Section 31 because he's been lost and confused yeah. and has, has had all sorts of identity crises. Right. But also, as Voke, he was already basically in a cult. And so whatever it is about his personality that makes him willing to attach himself to an ideology, maybe that, that core is still there. Yes, and I think I, I said in a previous, uh, previous episode that that's, you know, 
that's a hallmark of, of spy stories is the, the character who only fits in with these people. Yes. <laughs> because they don't belong anywhere else. And so it, it, it's absolutely like on brand for both the Ash book character and Section 31. <laughs> it's just, I, it's, it's amazing how he's already come there. Yes, you do expect it to take a little bit longer. And it's a little creepy to me to be on the, I kind of, like, I don't want to agree with Ash, but I kind no, of agree but... with Ash. Like, I don't think that the Red Angel is necessarily this bad thing or that's that's moving us out or that's, uh, you know, ultimately out to get us or creating the, the situation, like creating crises in order to solve crises. I don't necessarily believe that that's true but i do think that assuming that there they all these missions are necessarily benevolent and good and that we're being moved like yeah there's still pawns if 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 there's if they just decide to it I, i said somewhere i feel like they're no longer chasing the red angel they're following it and i'm not sure that's the best choice i think i think ash is quite right to be wary and i wouldn't be surprised if there comes a point where pike realizes that he's put too much faith in the red bursts and the red angel as benevolent forces and like saru and the great balance he's been deceived and needs to readjust his belief system oh so it's a theme yeah it's almost like like this whole season is about faith versus well, it's about faith, really, in, in various contexts. Of the heart? <laughs> no, never no? that. Okay. Never that. <laughs> in this house, we skip intro. Aww. Speaking of um, religious metaphors, it did not escape my notice that the 2,000-year span of the Great Balance is roughly in line with the lifespan of Christianity. And I think taken on its own without context, it would come across as kind of one of those... You know, you get it a lot in science fiction, that sort of smug, religion is the opiate of the masses uh, storyline. But with the context of the rest of the season so far, it's more of a story about how religion and belief systems can be manipulated to control people, which is a thing that's happened in our history. And I just thought that was really cool, Mm. the, the, the way it works in context. You really cannot watch this on its own. No, there's that. I mean, there's been a lot of nods to... Christianity mm. this whole season I mean, and, and religion in general but it does have a I mean you can't be following an angel no and, and not be basing it in Christianity and yeah so they're doing it they're doing interesting things with it I, I again I'm sort of like I hope it's going somewhere and it's not I, I, there are two things I don't want. I don't want the end of Battlestar Galactica where the answer no to all questions is God. Like, that's not what I want. <laughs> Excuse me, the answer to all questions is God and also killing most of the female characters. <laughs> and I, but I also don't want it to, I don't want there it to just sort of be like, we were using religion. I don't want it just be about uh, religion is it can be an, used as an opiate for the masses and therefore religion is bad like yeah I, I there has to be a middle ground here where but i think 
I think they're walking that middle ground pretty well so far, and especially with the strong implications that Pike himself, if not actively religious, has a, has a religious background, I think is, you know, adds a lot of nuance to that. And it's kind of fitting that Pike, of all characters in Star Trek, has that role because he, you know, comes from a time before Roddenberry had really solidified his concepts. So he, he's almost a throwback in that sense, in a very meta way. And he is the first Star Trek man. He is. He really is. <laughs> and he was kind of playing Adam in his first appearance. So yes, it's, it's almost his destiny. I, I have to say, I really liked his reaction when Tyler's like, well, you weren't in the war. Like, mate, just hand him a white feather or something, why don't you? <laughs> no. And I think, I think we've, had, we've established Pike as a guy whose masculinity is not toxic well enough that now we can get into his feelings about missing out on the war without it being sort of a manly, I, I, was, I was meant to fight sort of story. Yeah, no, I think it, it should be that he has this a burden of responsibility and, and I, can, I understand that from him. And I, I don't think it is about fighting. I think it's about being, uh, being held accountable for yes. what he does. You know, he's captain of the Enterprise in Starfleet serving the United Federation of Planets. And all of that was threatened by the war and he was not able to do anything about it. And also he he's, his identity as a captain and, and as a Starfleet officer seems to be really bound up in community. And his community has gone through something terrible and he wasn't part of that and I think he feels like he owes them something yes that's interesting and I like it and I'm kind of eager to see how it plays out because I'm at the point where I do trust their depiction of Pike yay <laughs> it just took me a few weeks I really like Pike he's um, has a lot of depth yes which I I don't know if I wasn't expecting it but I'm grateful yes uh, a friend of mine described him as the perfect antidote to Lorca because you never get the impression that he's going to misuse his power yeah because he would rather give up his power than misuse his power yeah yeah and I think we see that in how collaborative he is right even just his choice of ready room <laughs> yes yes and I, I really like that Lorca's ready room has become this communal science lab <laughs> that like it's almost the perfect revenge against a guy who didn't care that whales are not fish <laughs> speaking of matters underwater i see in our notes that you have something here about the ba'ul and naboo yeah well so back to this symbiotic oppressive yeah. relationship of all the planets in uh, in <laughs> star wars you know they're they're mostly there's like the sand planet and there's the mm. forest planet and there's the you know the, the all water planet but naboo it's like it's a swamp planet. If if you're gonna if you have to choose to stick it into one of these Star Wars for some reason, all mm. all of the planet has the same, which isn't you know scientific in any way. But well, we don't have to make fun of that. I would say Naboo has a fully developed ecosystem. Yeah, but Naboo has the best ecosystem in Star Wars because we see more of it, and it's definitely based in water. Yes, but it's not only water they and you know even like Padme even says they have sand so it's like way hey everything is is they, they have lush beautiful uh forests they have swamp 
they have sand, they have the river and the lake country. So, But the other thing that's interesting about Naboo is that there are two species that live there. Yes. And, you know, they cohabit. The, the, the humans and the, the gungans. The humans who live on the surface and then the gungans who live underwater. But they're amphibious. They're not, like, they don't just live underwater. They breathe air. And they, they, you know, end up having an army that goes up and saves the day mm. on the surface. They have, like, there's just a few interactions between the Naboo and the Gungans. Mm. But there's, there's, like, this idea of that there was this history and the, the Gungans definitely, like, the reason they have an army is because they're concerned about the surface dwellers the Naboo do not have an army, which is why Padme needs to go get the underwater one. So there's like this interesting, like the, the Naboo were definitely oppressing the Gungans, but in like a peaceful way, I guess. I don't know. There, like there was, there's, there's history there. And it's interesting to me that the Gungans are the quote unquote lower class of species. Mm. And, I mean, it's very George Lucas to have them save them in the end. But, yes. you know, I wanna, I've always wanted to know more about how those cultures negotiated, you know, previous to our time and then what happened afterwards because they, they have a bigger role after that mm. point because Padme, like, you know, had brokers peace with them or whatever and it goes on. And so I, like, I want to know more about Naboo the same way I want to know more about Kaminar. I, you know, the fact that the bubble came up out of the water, I was like, whoa, they're the Gungans. Like, they, <laughs> there's this, they're, they've been driven underwater, and they are happy there because they are at least part water dwellers. Mm. But they still, like, they're the ones with the weapons. They're the ones with the, the axe to grind with the, the Kelpians who are on top. And, like... Then it, it's reveals that the Kelpians did in the past repress them. Repress them. So it's like it's really it's like oh this is this is the same. It's the sort of the same interesting symbiotic oppositional relationship, uh, mm. and I'm just really interested in that. And I'm I really it's like because when you think about Earth and how much of the Earth is covered in water, and we don't know what uh, you know that much about it. We don't have like, you know, there could be secret water-dwelling people that we don't know about. I don't eat cephalopods. I don't eat squid or octopus because they're because too Because they're super smart, right? They're yeah. super smart. And so it's like this, it's really interesting to me when there's these intelligent species that cohabit but are distinct. Like, they're they're clearly different and I I'm always interested in the cultural relations between them mm. and it's just like I'm, I'm really into that and I love you know <laughs> I love Padme so I love Naboo <laughs> so like anything like I even defend Jar Jar so you are a bigger person than me <laughs> for all the flaws with the prequel trilogy it had really strong world building it wasn't necessarily executed in an interesting way all the time but the ideas were really yes. fascinating. Yeah. And I kind of got the same, the same sense with Kaminar that they knew a lot of what was going on beneath the surface, if you will, yeah. but didn't need to 
set it all out on screen. Yeah, I bet there's like a book. I'm, I'm, I like the, you know, the, this is the, you know, they say that there's like a story bible for all television series. Like, I'm sure there is a, eventually it will be on Memory Alpha kind of uh, you know, discussion. You know, I bet Discovery of, doesn't have a bible. Isn't that strange? It's, it's strange, but I also, I've heard that, like, that's, that's what people are moving towards or something like oh, okay. television is is evolving or something I don't know I was taught like I've taken classes in in television and it's like important to know these things you know not you, sh- you can't you can't be beholden to it you have to mm. evolve so maybe maybe that's what they mean like maybe they're saying we don't have a show bible that is that we can't like you know we I they have ideas of what all of the characters are and how they interact and where they come from but they can add to it which is like the way it should be but yeah I guess also with serialized storytelling you basically have a closed writer's room and you don't have new people coming in who need to be brought up to speed very very quickly yeah uh, I had something else to say and I've forgotten what it was because we got on to talking about show bibles I'm sorry. Oh well, I was I was talking about Jar Jar. So well, I am happy to move on from that. <laughs> but while we're in the underwater, I do want to like this is just a funny thing that mm. I want to mention that I loved when Saru made the decision to walk to the transport room, and he had this like he this his arms were behind him and they were doing this like yes. back and forth woobity woobity thing, and I was like that is like he I called it the sassy Saru. Because he was just, it was such an interesting, different way that he was walking than that he normally walks. Like, there was just... I think he's done it before because I remember reading Doug Jones saying he he has picked up this walk because it helps him balance on on those um, hoof shoes. But I've never noticed it before. Yeah, so I think it it was because because he was carrying himself with more confidence, it Ah, was more obvious. Like, you you know what I mean? Like, yes, that... His, it could be as simple as his shoulders were more back, <laughs> like, you know, like it could be anything. But it, I was do I was dancing to Splatoon Squid Sisters YouTube videos with my daughter. As one does, Th- yes. This is our exercise routine. And uh, Callie and Marie did this walk. And <laughs> they're, like, they are also like these, this underwater, they're squids. They're, they're, <laughs> they're squids have taken over the earth because humans destroyed it and all the humans are dead and it's uh, been taken over by evolved squids. So what I'm hearing is that I really need to play Splatoon. <laughs> you definitely need to play Splatoon. It is, it is uh, all about squids. I was like, whoa, Saru walks like, like a squid sister, walks like a squid kid. And then I was just, I was like, haha, that's so funny. Um, but I was explaining it to my daughter and I realized that it's not even the first Nintendo connection because last week <laughs> we had mushroom people. And I don't know if you know this, but Princess Peach, Mario's girlfriend, is the yes. princess of the Toadstool Kingdom. And that's why all of her people, like Toad, they're all, they're mushrooms. Like Princess Peach is a mushroom. <laughs> and... And there's like this whole Mushroom Kingdom, and I was like, haha, that's two Nintendo c- connections. This is like my favorite thing. I love finding obscure, ridiculous connections between two unassociated <laughs> fandoms. I really hope that someone out there is about to draw Hugh Colbert as Princess Peach. Yes, exactly. That's that's 
why I tell these stories. I want to yes. put it out there into the internet. Please draw Paul Stamets as Mario and Hugh Culver as Princess Peach. Speaking of video games, the conclusion with the Kelpians going through the Vaharai against, without their knowledge and against their will, I think part of the reason I found it disquieting was because it was very much like one of the endings of Mass Effect. There are three endings to the trilogy, and in one you can end the eternal conflict between uh, biological and technological life forms by choosing synthesis, which basically means that everyone becomes biological and technological and you know there's a montage of people with implants and glowing eyes and whatnot and I it's it's the ending that the game wants you to take and I mm. hate it <laughs> I did it once and I just it was it just sent chills down my spine it, it's it's you, you you've imposed this on the whole galaxy without consent and at the end of it like there's a disabled character and he still needs his, his mobility aids. And it's like, because I have a disability and sometimes I, I need a walking stick because I have arthritis. And it's like, I would probably be somewhat forgiving of someone making this choice for me if it meant that I could get around without that. But no. And, and so the, the Vaharai ending really reminded me of that and troubled me for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they, it's like Saru accepted his death Yes. Uh, in, a, in a very Kelpian way. My, it's my understanding is that's the way that Kelpians do, although I'm sure there has to be some of them that, uh, you know, fought it in some way, and, and those are the ones that the Vowel would deal with. Yes. Or, yeah. And he tells his sister, <laughs> like, you know, he, he he's able to say to her, you know, it's, it's going to hurt a lot, but you're going to survive it. But no one else on on Kaminar gets that message. <laughs> like no one. No. So no, it's so scary. They just fall over in pain and think they're going to die. Like and that everyone around them, they're all dying at once, and then it doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> like I, I just, I think they all need some kind of intervention, or it's like. like uh, group therapy, like they, they all need to talk about it. You know, maybe that's that's what we'll get in season three. Group therapy Kaminar edition. <laughs> like celebrity like celebrity <laughs> rehab but with more flying spine brain things. I yeah. I wonder I wonder if there will be more Kelpians in Starfleet. Like, they're still not more capable, right? No, <laughs> so, no. So what's, I mean, so does that mean that Starfleet, like, did this thing <laughs> to all of them and is then not going to talk to them until they get warp engines? Right. Like, I have, I have concerns. I saw one reviewer compare it to the United States invading Iraq without really having any plans for what to do with the place after Saddam Hussein was dealt with. And I thought that was very apt. Yes. Like, you need, you need a plan. If, if you can do some nation building in the Klingon Empire, Kaminar should be a cinch. <laughs> Which is extremely imperialistic, but sometimes, you know, when you've just, just effectively inflicted serious damage on a society you should probably stick around and help them deal with the consequences right. that's the thing it's like you can't you can't interfere and then leave you have to yeah. interfere and stay or not interfere <laughs> like 
which I get again, I guess, is what brings us back to this is why the Prime Directive ex exists. Probably Starfleet doesn't want to involve themselves in setting up the new society of Kelpians and Ba'ul on Kaminar. But I feel like they have a responsibility, like they shouldn't take charge of that. That has to be the work of the people who actually live there. But like, what if they sent in observers or people who could assist with negotiations between the two sides? They should send Sarek. No, <laughs> Sarek is not allowed to deal with this extremely fraught emotional situation. He needs something to occupy himself with, though. I'm sure he is rocking back and forth, repeating the Vulcan Science Director has determined that time travel is impossible over and over again. <laughs> so, speaking of Sarek, we're, yes. we're finally going to Vulcan next week. We're finally going to get Spock. About freaking time. <laughs> so, this was, you know, I'm, I like, I like that Michael is being proactive. She is not whinging about Spock. And she's she not... didn't even have a conversation with anyone about <laughs> driving him away. She's also not waiting for the Red Angel to tell her to go to Vulcan. Yes. <laughs> she's like, I'm just going to go. So this, this feeds into your theory that Michael is the Red Angel because she is being the most active. Yes. But she, which is also because she's the protagonist. So, you know, one way or well, the I other. Do... <laughs> I do feel like surely someone ha went, hey, maybe Spock's gone to Vulcan. We should, like, check it out. But it's a big planet. Like, I'm sure it's easy for one guy to get lost. They can't. They, they, it's established that, like, at least half of the planet is this desert area that no one goes into. And there's a yeah. lot of caverns and stuff that people hide in. Like, they, that's we've seen that on Enterprise, and it's been discussed in many a Vulcan discussion. <laughs> yes. I, I can absolutely imagine that Spock is hiding in plain sight on Vulcan. I don't know if, our, if we extend our spoilerific discussions to trailers for next week, but there was definitely a cave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was definitely a cave and there was definitely a Spock. And it, was, <laughs> it was like Amanda and Michael going into the cave, right? <laughs> so... But more importantly, there are also space squids. <laughs> Which... I have priorities. I have a Spock squid. And, like, I'm just so pleased that Spock is returning in the same episode where there are space squids. It, it, it does my heart proud. I think I need a Spock squid. It's adorable. I love my Spock squid. Really jealous. Yeah. <laughs> like... So speaking of people who need therapy, Hugh Colbert <laughs> needs a hug. Yeah, yeah, but he wouldn't accept one right now. No. He was putting off such stop touching me and get out of my personal space vibes. And yes. both the doctor and Paul were not paying any attention. No. And even Saru, even Saru like walked on over and was like, hey, I came back from the dead too. At least like, Saru put a shirt on before he did that. <laughs> like, like people, let's let's allow Hugh some space to come back from the dead. <laughs> like, can we out? Can we just give him a, a minute here? 
Like, I, I, Paul, I understand. Obviously, he is, like, yes. high on happiness that yes. he has his space boo back. And that's, like, I get that. I, I do not expect Paul Stamets to be rational for a while. No. But Pollard is a medical professional and should be alive to this sort of nuance. And uh, we were discussing in the Admiral's Legion Discord that it's kind of dodgy that she's just like, okay, well, you can go back to work now. I mean, on one hand, routine is good and it will help him. Yes. But, and and also because he's a doctor, he'll be in sickbay. So it's like, that's okay, true. you know, is the best place to have a breakdown is probably sick bay, So that's good. But she, she, yeah, she definitely shouldn't be like, you're better than normal <laughs> and you're ready to go. Like it should yeah. be, it should be a, a more nuanced conversation of, I think it would do you good to start working. Yes. Let's come up with a plan for how to but do that. But also, we don't have a counsellor on board because it's only the 2250s, so we've organised some therapy sessions via Skype, and that that is something you should do because that will be helpful to you. And I understand that, like, drama requires people to uh, hit rock bottom, but I just think that with a bit of work, we can find stories in healthy <sighs> mental health practices i mean the, the the therapy by skype like literally everyone on that ship should have weekly therapy by skype section sessions yeah. at this point like if that's what should be happening here pike ash michael saru hugh paul like there is a list and every single person in this entire show including people like Kat and Amanda and Sarek all need to be checking in with their yeah. Skype therapists <laughs> yes on a regular basis <laughs> they should be round the clock <laughs> I feel a bit bad for the the Emperor's Skype therapist because I don't think she knows what she signed up for <laughs> imagine like once uh Philippa understands the whole doctor-patient confidentiality thing. <laughs> like, she just lets loose. They would, they would need a very special person for, for that. Surely, surely someone would give her a heads up or she'd figure out for herself that Kat Cornwell has no compunction about looking at the records of people under her command. Like, I'm not even sure she should have been looking at Lorca's records. Yeah, like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely some dodgy choices, medical choices, <laughs> like a lot. I mean, why, like, just why was Hugh's physical session open, like, into no. whoever wants to wander into sickbay? <laughs> yeah, like, let's do it. It just seems really. Sickbay set design in every single Star Trek has distressed me, but I think Discovery might actually be the very worst. Discovery is definitely the worst because, like, the beds all face each other. So the person, like, opposite in the bed opposite you sees your readings and you can't. Like, it's just so many things are wrong here. Those beds are so short that Sonequa Martin-Green is the only person (laughs) whose legs aren't hanging (laughs) off the end. Like, did they run out of money? I mean, yes. I, my, my assumption is that they wanted it's, the room to look bigger than it is 
so they made the beds shorter. But whenever anyone's sitting in them, it looks ridiculous. But it's such a small room. Like, there's no getting around that. I guess it's expensive and takes up a lot of space to have a sick bay set with, like, private wards and stuff. But, yeah. I just, like... One of those little curtains, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, these yeah, things like a, exist. A, a, an opaque force field. Right. Weird. Oh, well. All right, we can wrap up now. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, no, uh, I have oh, one oh. more thing. One more thing. Sorry. It was about the Aeschylus quote at the end between Michael and Saru and Tumblr user Aristophanes. Aristophanes? I should ask her. Uh, dug up the full context. And this is the full quote. God, whose law it is that he who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, and in our own despite against our will comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. So it was a very hopeful line in Discovery and in context. It's actually terrifying. <laughs> that sounds, that, I think that is a perfect summary of the season so far. Yes, and, and the play it comes from is Agamemnon, and if you're not up on your Greek myth, uh, Agamemnon was one of the Trojan, no, the Greek generals who waged war on Troy. And uh, before he left Greece for Troy, he sort of kind of had to sacrifice his daughter to the gods to bring the winds back, and his wife was a wee bit pissed about that. So this play is about him returning to his kingdom, and she straight up murders him in the bath, <laughs> like splits his head open with an axe. So, oh, those Greeks. So zany. People who also need a lot of therapy. But uh, I will link this in the show notes. Aristophanes has a lot of theories about homecomings and connections to Greek myth in season two, and uh, nice. the potential, the potential ominous uh, symbolism of Aeschylus. I, I, that's great because I saw a lot of Greek myth in the first season. So I yeah. Carrying it forward is good. I think that that's, it's like, it's a discovery thing. I, I think that's... Well, it's a, it's a TOS thing too. Like Greek yeah. mythology was all over the original series. And I like that it's just a 23rd century thing. A plus. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> Go. Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Five star reviews help make us visible to the algorithm that rules everyone's lives. You cannot support us on Patreon or like us on Facebook. However, we are now on Twitter at, at @antimatterpod. You can also find us at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. Please send vaguely positive thoughts in our direction and join us next week for more discovery. We finally find Spock and Squids. Sorry, I just. Yeah. <laughs>